Welcome back to the Weekly Driver Podcast. My name is James Rea. I'm an automotive columnist for Bay Area News Group, and I publish the website, theweeklydriver.com. My broadcast partner and friend is Bruce Aldrich, and today we have on a guest from Australia, where it's, I believe it's 6 a.m., something like that. Uh, his name is Mark Pesci, and he has a fascinating series of podcasts uh, with the title of The Next Billion Cars. So welcome to our program, uh, Mark. How are things in uh, Sydney today? Uh, very good, thank you. They're, uh, they're cold and dark because the sun has not risen yet. Okay, thanks for the special... Uh, Getting up special, maybe you're maybe you're an early riser anyway. But thanks for the early time. Uh, I think the, a good launching part uh, point, Mark, would be to just to tell us in terms of the numbers. Why is the podcast series called uh, "The Next Billion Cars"? And you have a lot of other mathematical equations in there. So give us some background about the genesis of the podcast and and what the, what the goal is. Well. I heard a figure last year which said that right now we're manufacturing about two cars a second. That's globally. Yes. And it, the next billion cars is part of a larger, larger podcast series called The Next Billion Seconds. And I do know how long a billion seconds is. That's about 31 years. Gotcha. And so that means that we're manufacturing a billion cars in about 15 years. Scary. That's, <laughs> well, it's scary at one level because that's a lot of anything to make. But it's also scary because there's broad consensus that no one knows what that car looks like 15 years from now. This isn't like if you go back a billion seconds, if you go back to 1988 and you ask people what a car looks like in 15 years, they would have gotten it more or less right. But if you ask people today, no one will be able to say, this is what a car looks like. This is how it drives. This is what the powertrain is. This is what the experience is for the driver, for the passenger, and any of that. No one knows the answers to these questions, and no one knows whether there's going to be a car industry as we know it today in 15 years. I hadn't thought about that, but that's a great answer. Thanks thanks for that. Um, just a little bit about your background. I'm, I'm just reading from the information that was provided. You you have a long background Um you're American-born, a futurist, inventor, writer, entrepreneur, educator, and podcaster. All those things. Do you like all those titles? And it is, is it accurate? Yeah, all of those things are accurate. Um, I moved to Sydney 15 years ago. But you know, my background is very deep in technology. So I'm one of the folks who brought you the World Wide Web. And 25 years ago, I invented the 3D interface to the web called VRML with Tony Parisi, who was also out in the Bay Area with me. And so all the 3D that you see on the web today is descended from the work that we did 25 years ago. Well, thank you wow. for that. Um, now, the, the podcast that I've had a chance to listen to, um, you have, I, I believe this is accurate. You have a particular interest in autonomous vehicles and you have, if you don't mind me saying it this way, you have some concerns uh, about <laughs> the industry, to say the least. And that might be a good place to start uh, uh, from that podcast. Tell us your, your, if you, there's a good overview of your, your beliefs on the autonomous car industry, because as an auto reviewer, I have a great interest in it as well. So I, I think maybe the simplest thing to say is that an autonomous vehicle is harder than it looks. That's not a bad thing there. Yes. But a lot of car makers, and particularly, I mean, we had the, CEO of Mercedes-Benz back in, I don't know, was it 2017, saying, oh, don't worry, by 2021, the entire car line will be autonomous. We'll have 
level free autonomy and and for the listeners that basically means a car that a human doesn't have to be monitoring all the time there's probably a licensed driver in there but the car is basically driving itself most of the time you don't have to keep your hands on the wheel like you would with a tesla and it was like oh yeah that'll be fine we'll have entire lines of cars and and there had become this growing expectation both in the mind of the car industry but also in the mind of people who were using buying driving cars that this was really very close and last year, I was sitting down with my friend Ken Goldberg, who teaches at Berkeley. And he is the head of the robotics program at Berkeley and has been working in robotics for 35 years and is considered one of the basic authorities on the topic. And he laughed. He said, Mark, it's not going to happen. It's just not going to happen. There's too much here that needs to be done right for that to happen. And the more that that actually sort of had me look deeper and deeper. The more I looked into this, the more I realized that what the car makers were essentially signing up to was not just becoming good car makers, which they are, but becoming the best makers of artificial intelligence systems in the world from a standing start and doing this in a way that would give them very sophisticated artificial intelligence, because that's what it takes to make a good autonomous vehicle, which can deal with a whole bunch of different conditions and situations and exceptions, all of these things happening. Doing that from a standing start and doing that safely enough that someone will feel like they can put their own child in that vehicle and send that vehicle off to its destination. We are not close to that yet. Is Google one of the... Pioneers, one of the stronger ones in this AI field? There is no question that Google's Waymo is the strongest entry in this field. And even Google, with all of the resources, all of the time, all of the scientists, and it's funny because Ken was grumbling at me for years that every graduate who had passed through his program or say everyone, every PhD was immediately hired by Google. Right? He couldn't get them to do any research for him because they were just going to work for Google. And so Google has this wealth of AI expertise. And even they now, with their Waymo program, still have a human driver behind the wheel. Maybe not driving the vehicle, but keeping an eye on the computer, because even they kind of don't trust their capacity yet to be able to make this thing work. Um, Mark, uh, the incident that happened in Arizona, I think, has it been two years now or three years? Do you think that that was a major setback to the industry? And if you do, great. Uh, Could you shed some light on that? And if you don't, could you shed some light on that opinion? So, yeah, so that was the uh, accident in Tempe, Arizona. Yes. I believe that was actually only a year, only a year ago. Only a year ago, Where yes. an Uber autonomous vehicle hit a pedestrian. So a woman was crossing the street with her bicycle at night and hit and killed her. And I think there, there's sort of two things to consider here. One is that for the first time, the public was exposed to the idea that an autonomous vehicle was potentially a dangerous weapon. Yes. And... It was a penny drop moment for the public in that the public would now see the autonomous vehicle not as just nice, friendly thing, but potentially as something that could hurt, could endanger themselves or other people. So that's that's a framing moment. And so that's then something that, that the auto industry is going to have to work against to dispel. Yes. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that when the National Transportation Safety Board 
examined in detail the causes leading to that crash. What they found is that the software had had some of its checks engaged, or probably disengaged, so that it wasn't necessarily looking at the sensors, so that it wasn't seeing this woman crossing the road, and that the human operator was likewise disengaged, I think, answering a text message, or I don't know. But, you know, again, it's that thing. Yes. Distracted drivers. And, and you can't have a distracted driver in an autonomous vehicle no, right now. No, you know, no. we, we just had an accident happen with the Tesla at the time we were recording this. An accident with the Tesla happened, I think, two or three days before. They don't know if it was because it was in autopilot mode and the driver wasn't paying attention. None of these systems are really good enough yet and I'm not saying, this is the thing, we are not saying they will not be good enough, right? I, I, I want to be completely clear. They will get good enough. We will certainly have that level three autonomy where you'll be able to have mostly unattended autonomous driving on a wider, a wider range of road conditions than we see today. We will get there. But it's going to take time. It's going to take effort. And it's going to take billions of dollars of investment from car companies that are already financially stretched. And so some of them may not be able to get all the way there. Yeah, that's interesting. Mark, uh, there's other challenge. Just there's a lot of challenges just for autonomous driving, as you mentioned, but there's also challenges ahead for the transportation business in general, such as uh, away from moving away from fossil fuels, uh, ride sharing, subscription services, um, the recycling of old cars, what are some other, or what, what do you see as a big problem ahead? Yeah, so the next episode that we have coming out is actually all about electric vehicles, because the two overarching, if you want to take a look at the biggest, the two biggest changes in the next billion cars, it's autonomous vehicles and electric vehicles, and they're happening at roughly the same time. Electrification in some ways is easier because we understand how to build electric vehicles. We understand how to build them at scale. We even understand how to build all of the batteries. What we don't necessarily have a great handle on yet is the charging infrastructure. If you're living in an urban area and you have an EV and you don't have a garage, how do you charge your car? Do you charge your car at work? You can't charge your car in the street. Does, this, does every city in the world have to build huge charging infrastructures? So there are some interesting questions that pop up when we radically transform the fuel source for our vehicles. Everyone wants electric vehicles if they can provide the range and the refuelability that we're associating with gasoline, with petrol. If we don't have that, then you're fighting against this idea that the vehicle is a lesser kind of vehicle. But the other thing that we're seeing, and this is... You know, when we're talking about disruption, a few, uh, a transforming the powertrain is one kind of disruption that's happening to an automobile. But there's this other kind of disruption. Now, in Sydney, over the last two to three years, we've seen lots of bike messengers who are delivering for the various services like Uber Eats and and um, Delivery U. There's, there's a bunch of different services, and you can order things online, and a bicycle messenger will deliver to you. In the last about eight weeks, all of those bicycles have suddenly become electric bicycles. Mm -hmm. And it happened almost invisibly. Someone pointed it out to me, and I'm like, oh, my God, actually, you're absolutely right, because it's just happened. And so you have this sudden influx of electric vehicles 
that we don't think of as cars because they're not cars, they're bicycles. But now we're starting to see that when you redefine what an electric vehicle is, which is an electric something that gets you from point A to point B, it's electric transportation. What we may actually be seeing is that particularly in urban zones, there's this really interesting mix that have electric bicycles, electric tricycles, which will be sort of more human scale, things that look like a Segway that doesn't make you look like you're being silly, but a range of different vehicle sizes that are also going to be nibbling away the common sense of where we would use an automobile. And I was talking to the head of mobility at Ford at the Detroit Auto Show, and she indicated that Ford owns a bicycle maker, an electric bicycle maker. And I'm starting to understand why. And it's because they are also seeing this mix. And so that mix of how we're using cars, particularly in urban zones, is going to be really different because of the transition to electrification. We've seen that, too, in the uh, the auto shows where they have bikes there, and we we couldn't figure out what the association was. We went to the L.A. Auto Show, I think, three years ago for the first, maybe four years ago for the first time, and we noticed Ford, as you mentioned, and maybe some others. Honda has a new one as well, and and so thanks kind of for explaining that. Um, If you wouldn't mind, I'm just going to take a a step backward a little bit, and I want to give a compliment to your colleague because even though I'm, I'm part of the industry, I didn't know a real good, succinct uh, definition of autonomous vehicles one through five and your uh, Ken I believe it was I was listening to the podcast and he gave a, a great description of what defines each of those levels so you know compliments to him because I listened in, in about five minutes he went through and, and uh, stated everything that I could as a layperson uh, could understand um, what exactly it means so uh, thanks to him and I'm sure you feel the same way it was a great a great definitions. Yeah, that, that's Drew Smith, who is a car designer, yes. and he did a wonderful job of the five levels of autonomy. And it's funny because he's at the Geneva Auto Show right oh, now. lucky and him. And sending, yeah, lots of pictures off of Twitter, taking a look at everyone's designs. And this is another thing that's happening because we're redesigning vehicles as EVs, but we're also redesigning all of the dashboards and all the control points around sort of what we think of as almost like tablet and smartphone design. Yes. And some of that may not be working out the way <laughs> we want because yeah. – so, so Sally Domingues, who's like my, my co-host and I, went to yes. the Consumer Electronics Show, which is – you know that's kind of the big car show in America now. It happened suddenly because cars became really technological gadgets. Yes. This has become a big show. Mm-hmm. And – we stumbled quite accidentally into the rollout for the Byton M bike. And Byton is this Chinese car company, basically almost Foxconn, who makes cell phones, has gone into uh, gone into business with a whole bunch of BMW car engineers to produce this car. We saw it as well, but go ahead, please. Yeah, it's it's a beautiful in terms of the style. It's beautiful, but it has this forty eight inch display, which is the dashboard. So the yes. dashboard is a single display. And the way they were showing it in all the publicity photos was this big, white, shining thing. And I immediately look at that and say, you can't see the road over that dashboard. It will (laughs) outshine the road. Yes. And so you have to have this very careful think around usability, user interface, dashboard design, which has been different from what automakers have done before this because they now have so much more capacity there. A dashboard really was just a couple of indications 
on a big space. Now it's going to be very information rich, but when you make something information rich, you're, you're dragging the attention of the driver while they're still driving yes. away from the road. Well said. That yes. And so problem. you can, you can feel all of this tension in the, the, the things we can do and the things we shouldn't do. The weekly driver podcast gets support from AmericanMuscle.com, your late model Mustang and F-150 authority bringing you the hottest products and top-notch customer service for over a decade. No one makes it easier to modify your ride. Visit AmericanMuscle.com today. Mark, the other area I wanted to discuss with you is just from a podcaster's point of view, um, this is that all these things that you've done. What, what have you found from uh, a broadcaster's perspective now, a podcaster's perspective? Have you had a lot of reception to your podcast? And and, and how is that um, different from what you've done in other areas? So we're almost a year and a half into what we've been doing, but I'm, I'm curious to know what you've discovered and what kind of reach you've had and what kind of reaction you've had from your podcast. We're definitely seeing a good reaction to this series. We've really only just gotten started. I mean, the full series will be 10 episodes, and we're only sort of into episode two now. Yes. And so I think the audience... Although we laid out the plan in the first episode, said so the audience would understand the next billion problems as we laid it out. Like, there's all the stuff that's really in the air right now around yes. cars. It's as we nail them down that we feel the audience will come along. But the beautiful thing about a podcast is that an audience doesn't have to discover it the day it's released. They can discover it a week or a month or even a year later. Absolutely. And we, we do feel that this will still be valid and valuable to people in a year. So a lot of what we want to do is do the work and get it out there and then really give it to people. It's like, here's your overview. Here's what you need to know to understand what's happening to the cars that you're driving in or the bus that you're taking to work or the bicycle that you're pedaling right now, that they're all of a piece and they're all transforming. It's, uh, my show does very well in Australia. Part of what we want to do is bring that same enthusiasm with the audience into North America as one of the big car markets. But I'd love to also see this translated into Chinese because that's the largest car market oh, in the yes. world now. Yes, good point. Mark, one other thing I'd maybe you could touch on. You, you speak of mobility services in the future and a lifetime relationship with those services. In other words, um, if I want to fly to Hawaii, I don't talk to Boeing, who makes the, the hardware, makes the airplane. I talk to, you know, my local carrier or, or national carrier, you know, United or whatever, and they're the mobility service. So the next big thing is mobility services. Is that true, or how does that all tie into the new landscape of personal transportation? Not only is that absolutely true, we're going to have an entire episode, which we're calling The Next Billion Passengers, which is really taking a look at this idea of end-to-end, -end, so that the thing that you as the passenger, as the person who's going somewhere thinks about is your beginning point and your end point. And then what you have and what we're starting to see is this integration of all of the different transport modes. And then what you get is essentially a menu. Here's the different ways you can do this. You could take an Uber from point A to point B. You could take a chauffeur from point A to point B. You could take your car. You could take a bicycle halfway to the bus station and then take a bus from here to here. And it lays out all of the transport options. And it's funny because Google Maps does this 
kind of a little bit, but this is going to be integrated across all of the transport options and across all of the payment ways. And this is these are the two things. So what that requires to work is that all of the people who are offering the transport options have to integrate their offerings around a common hub. And we're starting to see some of the transport authorities. One of the leaders in this is the Transport Authority of New Zealand. So that if you fly into Queenstown, which is their big ski resort, when you fly in, they already know from the passenger manifest who's flying in. They make sure that there's enough transport at the airport to take you where you're going. They, they, there's services so that you can check your skis at the airport so that they're at the slope so you don't have to take them and check them into the hotel. And they present this entirely integrated model for transport for both you and your goods, your luggage. So you never have to think about this. It just feels seamless when That's you impressive. land there. Yes. 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 That, we have and a... Go ahead. Yeah. And that's a test ground for them being able to do that in the major cities of Wellington and Auckland around other kinds of transportation modes. Yeah, we have on a small scale just here in Sacramento, we have um, something that uh, Bruce and I saw a few years ago at the LA Auto Show. It's called Ollie. And so it's an autonomous transport vehicle where students can get on and go from one end of the campus to the other. It's not quite as elaborate as what you're discussing, but we're starting small here, but... We're, we're, we're getting a glimpse of it here in, in Sacramento as well. Right. And, and I think starting small is exactly the right thing to do. New Zealand is a small country, so in some ways they can be much more liberated around their experiments. But they need to get it right in Queenstown, which is a small town but a skiing town, before they could roll that out in Wellington or Auckland. And Auckland is a city of a million and a half. But they absolutely want to. And I have seen the infrastructure of the building in Auckland, where they know where every bus is all of the time, and they know how many passengers are on the bus, and they know roughly from statistics where those passengers are going, and they have all of the vehicles mapped out so they know the traffic flows. And you're starting to build with big data these kinds of systems that can actually do a really good job of helping you plan out your journey. And so this is the kind of face of big data and AI that's going to make things a lot easier for people when they're integrated across the transport and payment networks. And the transportation is what will be important. They, we're not concerned like now if we're in a 737 or a, what the airplane is. We just want to get there. And the same with cars, I guess. You, the, some of the big players might fall out because like Ford's, for example, maybe doesn't get into this system well, nobody wants, they don't pick their Ford or their Jaguar or whatever. They don't care. It's just whoever the players are that provide transportation, that's what we'll be driving or we'll have access to. Yes, and I, and this is the great danger. And I think folks in the car industry see this but haven't really talked about it, which is that as we move forward and get to these different transportation options, do we need as many cars? Do we need the next billion cars or do we only need the next hundred million or half billion cars? And if that's the case, if the market shrinks suddenly and profoundly, and there's not, no one knows yet, but everyone suspects that that might happen, then are any of the automakers the same size or the same power or are they, are we really focused on the manufacture of those vehicles in the same way 15 years from now? Mark, in the last minute or so that we have, could you take us through a, a brief synopsis of the other episodes you have planned and uh, really look forward to them? I have a list in front of me, but why don't you uh, 
take us through some of the things that, that are really exciting in, in your world and, and the listeners can can uh, listen in and, and gain some knowledge in the next you know next nine or eight, I guess you have eight, eight episodes left. Yeah. So as I said, the next episode is very much going to be about electrification, but actually not just electrification because hydrogen is going to be very important to that future as well. Agreed. Yes. Car batteries... Car batteries don't like it when it's too hot or it's too cold. So if you're living in Saskatchewan, actually a hydrogen vehicle is a better alternative. Or if you're living in Saudi Arabia or in Alice Springs, which are very hot places. And so there are areas where so we're going to take a look at the mix of fuels that are coming. And then we're going to take a look at the experience of the car. What does that really mean to be a passenger in a vehicle, which may be electric, may be driving itself? How does that change? You know, we're talking about Netflix, watching Netflix while you're driving or putting your makeup on or whatever it's going to be. So we're really going to get stuck into that idea that the experience of the car is changing. Gotcha. And, and this is very much, Sally is a performance car racer and so she's brought a real love of the performance aspects of the car and she's trying to understand what the road ahead is we can see electric vehicles with enormous acceleration enormous torque but is that really going to be the standard are we really going to all end up with just sort of like nah, self-driving don't go too fast don't. so she's she's trying to understand whether our future is as exciting in the, for the driver as it was for the past. Gotcha. Yeah, I, I heard her talk about that. She's a performance nut, and she's a little yeah. worried that uh, we're, we're going to lay everything down too slow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then we're going to go into the, that whole area of mobility as a service and talk about what it means to have this end-to-end thinking about transport and how various both, I think, car companies on one, one side, but also governments, because it ends up being the government that asks all of the transportation objects to, options to work together in a framework. So how those two come together to collaborate for that and what that means for someone who's just using that service. Then we're going to do the next billion tons, which is that we're making a lot of cars. We're going to be recycling a lot of cars. Are we actually thinking clearly about recycling, particularly when we start getting to electric vehicles, which will have a lot of batteries that need to be recycled. And so we're going to dive into that because we don't want to be drowning in our own scrap. We want to actually be able to create a circular economy with that vehicle. Great. Right. Yes. Well, Mark, um, that's fantastic. Um, We want to thank you for being our guest. Uh, Mark Pesci, the Next Billion Cars uh, 10-part series on just a fascinating area that I'm just beginning to understand a little bit, but you certainly you've helped today uh, explain things. So thank you very much for being our guest on the Weekly Driver Podcast. Very much appreciate your, your early morning there and spending some time with us. Thank you so much. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay. We'll be in touch. Appreciate it. Cheers. Bye-bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. The Weekly Driver Podcast receives support from americantrucks.com. Your late model Silverado, Sierra, Ram, and F-150 online aftermarket retailer. Bringing you all of the hottest parts from accessories to lift kits, from wheels to tires and winches. AmericanTrucks.com has the knowledge and know-how to make your wildest dreams come to reality.